Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Carpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio. Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. You can download the app in the App Store or on Google Play, and you get over 200 meditations from 30 expert teachers. Such a small investment to sleep better, feel less anxious, and to be more focused and productive. And your one-time purchase of the app helps to keep our podcast going. Give it a try. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We love having you with us. Today, I interview Alejandro Chao. Alejandro is an assistant professor and director of education at the Integrative Medicine Program at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. He holds group and individual meditation classes and clinic for cancer patients and their caregivers and conducts research on the efficacy of these mind-body techniques. He's originally from Argentina, has studied Tibetan Buddhism for many years, and was inspired to do this work with cancer patients when his own father was first diagnosed with cancer at MD Anderson many years ago. He believes that meditation is the medicine of the mind and cares deeply about the work that he does. Now, here's Alejandro. Alejandro, it is so great to have you on Untangle today. Thank you, Patricia. I'm really happy to be here. So I want to first understand um, what inspired you to begin doing the work that you're doing. I think, uh, and not to bore the audience, so because it did start uh, really early uh, in a way because I had what I used to call anxiety attacks, or actually I would call them then existential attacks because they were not what we call now anxiety attacks. So these existential attacks were like I would wake up at night and I would say, and now what? Mm. There's nothing else. And now... I was brought up, so I'm originally from Argentina, so very Catholic country, and I was brought up in the Jewish tradition. And so my sense was, when we leave this body, that's it. And so in a way, I feel that those existential attacks uh, came from that idea that, you know, go back to the dust and, and that's it. And so it was, I even had them in other places, such as in movie theaters. That started happening early on, probably I was eight to 10. And then what came to me, interesting enough, and I, I, I really put this together kind of retrospectively, I didn't really think of it this way as I was going along at that age, but a, a book that was really uh, crucial for me uh, at that time was Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. And it felt that there was something there that I was interested in. And I kept on reading it as almost like studying it. And I, I did that for a while. And then when I went to college, I ended up transferring uh, to the US. And there I got to study Zen meditation. What I really started getting into was more the philosophy. And so when I finished my college, my undergrad, I was doing it interesting enough in communications and advertising, but then did a second career on philosophy and particularly ended up in Oriental philosophy. When I finished, went to India for almost a year. And that's really when it clicked. 
So when I went to India, I really went looking for a guru. I met many, uh, some of which I didn't stay with. And within the Hindu tradition, Swami Chimayanandaji was the one that I really clicked on with. And then with the Tibetans, I was actually walking in uh, Ladakh and then met many different monks in the different monasteries who were very kind with me and let me sleep there and fed me. And we were basically communicating through smiles and uh, hands, uh, very little uh, language uh, similarity. And since that, I really got more into it and I got a personal teacher, Yeshador Jirinpoche, and I started studying what they call in the Tibetan tradition, the Ngondro, the fundamental practices, uh, which took me seven years to finish. And so I got really interested and then that inspired me to also follow an academic interest in, in Buddhist studies. So I did my, and at the same time was studying with uh, teachers so what did you get your PhD in, actually? So my PhD was in uh, Tibetan religions. My dissertation was actually on Tibetan burn yogic practices and applications uh, for people with cancer or applications in Western contemporary medical environment. Wait, so I just want to go back for a second to your to your what you were calling your existential attacks and that being like one of the inspirations for your ongoing sort of search and study and the finding of a guru. When when you call these existential attacks, you're saying, who am I? Why am I here? A lot of people have that moment and they feel completely lost, but you were inspired to do something with it. That's really what prompted me when I was in in college to really look into philosophy. And that was really a kind of an opening that I wasn't expecting. When I went into that direction, it just really opened a whole other world. And I went to India. I went, you know, with a backpack. At that time, you know, you could live with uh, three bucks a day. And it was great. I, I, I managed to stay there for nine, 10 months. And it really changed my life. Yeah, I love, love, love that you followed your curiosity. So you're learning all these practices and you're kind of integrating them into your own life because you're taking on gurus and studying with different teachers. But then what inspired you to do your PhD on you know, what's the intersection between some of these Tibetan practices and applications for cancer? Doing my PhD, my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so he came here for a second opinion and he came to MD Anderson and he asked me to accompany him. We knew that there were great oncologists, but one other thing that was here was that they had just started something that they called place of wellness. And place of wellness was a place that there was not just focused on cancer, but was focused on the well-being of the person, or what we would call the biopsychosocial, so the psychosocial aspect of the people. I asked them if they were interested in meditation, and they said yes. So I started as a volunteer, first, of course, asking my own teachers. Basically, with the teacher's advice, I created my first program here called Connecting with Your Heart, as in kind of lower your revolutions of the monkey mind and come home to your heart mind. So that was basically how I started 18 years ago here. So you talked about starting to work with 
cancer patients and how you became interested. And you have this phrase on your website, and I think it's a it's a big part of what you do. You talk about meditation as the medicine of the mind. How do you bring that concept to people that are going through cancer that have never meditated before? So first of all, you know, as any good scholar has to uh, cite its sources. So I didn't create the, the phrase meditation as the medicine of the mind. Um, and I found it in a maybe not so well-known encyclopedia or source book, but it was in a yogi tea bag. And so whoever wrote those, so thank you. And so for me, it has a number of things uh, in that simple phrase. One is that I'm talking about meditation. I'm not talking about Buddhism. I'm not talking about a religion. I'm talking about a tool that can be used within a Buddhist or Hindu context, but also can be used without. And that's the way that we are researching it here. And the other part is that really, uh, and I think you you touched into something that I, I, I struggle with, which is this concept of mind. And in a, in a way, there's the mind that we, uh, particularly in the West, uh, we pay homage to, which is the intellectual mind, uh, but that many times in our emotional aspect, it, it gets to be more of a monkey mind. And how we can uh, calm that monkey mind and be more in our mind heart or in our heart. What is the heart? Is that tapping into our emotions or how do you define the heart? First of all, if you if you look at in the in Western medicine and now, for example, even within what I am in, which is integrative medicine, mm-hmm. there's an aspect of what we call mind-body medicine. And and, and mind-body is really kind of realigning that a mind-body connection. But one of the things that we don't talk enough about, and they do talk a lot in the Eastern traditions, is the link between the mind and body. Many times it's talked about as if it was, uh, they call it energy, but not energy kind of in an esoteric way necessarily, but energy uh, in terms of the field of interaction of mind and body, but also in how it expresses itself mostly through breath and through sound. So most of the mind-body practices are in a way mind-breath-body practices, mind-sound-body practices, and so forth. And so... In that way, for example, when you're breathing and you're, you change your breath and breathe lower, what happens is even physiologically, you're rebalancing your sympathetic and parasympathetic system, right? So the sympathetic system is what puts us in our fight or flight response and reacting to things. And that's really the monkey mind at its best. But if we're able to calm that, as Herbert Benson uh, started studying around 40 years ago and coined it the relaxation response, is being able to bring up the parasympathetic system and be able to be relaxed in the midst of that same stressor. And so in a way, that's one of the aspects of meditation. And I have to say, it's very interesting how many people that I meet, um, like uh, a patient recently, that was saying, I never knew that I could breathe this way. So this is a person in her 60s and not having breath, you know, being breathing in that way. And so even acknowledging that is is really a, a big, a big change. So the breath as a way of reconnecting 
the mind that can start to be like a monkey mind, but actually by the breath, be back into the body. So within the body, once you feel it in the body, in a way, one of the places that we feel it the most is at the heart center, kind of what we sometimes call the heart chakra. So MD Anderson, you're working with mostly cancer or all cancer patients. And let's say you're doing a group with them. What are some of the symptoms and how are you addressing those with these practices? Yeah, so first of all, in the classes, uh, they're open to anyone touched by cancer. So that means not just patients, but also their caregivers, uh, family members. So that's one. Two is, so this question that you ask is something that I start the class with. So in the class, I ask them to say a little bit about themselves. And I always hear, you know, the word stress, the word fear, as you mentioned, the word uncertainty, you know, the, this idea of not feeling comfortable in their body or in their situation that they're now. So partly is bring, bring oneself back home, bring oneself even back into the body, into where we are now. Um, there's been an interesting research study that says that 48% of the time, we're not even where we are. And I'm not even talking about meditation. I'm talking about whatever you are doing, whether it's uh, a particular project, whether you're meeting with your best friend, and if you're meeting with him or her for an hour, uh, half an hour, you're checked out. And I tell, you know, when I meet with, because I also teach for faculty and staff here, you know, uh, for doctors, if, if you meet for eight minutes with a patient and four minutes you're checked out, that's a lot. So you better be more mindful. Answering your question. So one of the things is just the, the feeling of being in a group. So what we call kind of social health, it's an important part. And by each one mentioning who they are and what, what they're here for. And then I, I mentioned a little bit about uh, some of the benefits of meditation and then is giving them tools to refocus their mind and giving them permission um, that it's okay to be distracted as long as you notice it and then you bring it back. So there is no kind of, oh, I've done it wrong. You know, when people... When people come and say, I've been trying to meditate, but I don't know how, or I, I've, I've done it wrong, I say, no, you've not done it wrong. You've just been practicing. It sounds like when you ask them who they are and what they're feeling, you know, that some of them may be having some of these, like what you were calling existential attacks, like this is such traumatic information that they've received, whether they're the caregiver or the person do you feel like you can relate to some of the feelings that they're expressing? Yes. So, and, and sometimes I even say, even though I don't have cancer now, there's a lot of the things that you say that I, I can relate, or at least I, I can feel I can relate somehow. And so, and I think that's a situation always, you know, you can never really be in the other person's shoes right. or another person, but we can empathize. And then we can connect to them by being as present as you know as I can and, and and really just being with what they're offering in terms of what they're saying. And usually I try to provide things that are simple. Yeah, when you talk about people refocusing their minds, like we hear a lot from 
people who are learning how to meditate. You know, we talked about the monkey mind, but that you get stuck on something that's really difficult. How is it that people can refocus their minds when they're going through trauma? You know, when you ask the patients, how do they feel? Many times, the main issue is not their cancer. It's all these other things. You know, many times could be something that has to do with their anxiety, sometimes has to do with their depression, sometimes has to do with their lack of sleep. And meditation can be a, a, a useful tool for that. And, and by no means the only one. So the way that the patients come to see me, they come first to see the integrative medicine clinician. So first they see, because we're in a cancer hospital, they first see an oncologist and then they're referred to integrative medicine. And one of the clinicians of integrative medicine sees uh, them. And then they would say, for you, that would be, you know, I think meditation one-on-one -on -one will be good. Or come to the classes that are free. You know, that class that I started 18 years ago, Connecting With Your Heart, today is actually called Tibetan Meditation. It has three different kinds that I keep on rotating. One is the power of breath, where I teach more about the breath and how we can rebalance the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic system, how we can basically let go of the stress response and or the fight or flight response and be more in um, the relaxation response, but also teach them a practice that we do a lot in many of the Tibetan traditions called the nine breathing practice, which is letting go of things that you attach to, letting go of anger, letting go of confusion, being more in an open state of mind. And then the second, uh, let's say Tuesday, I would teach more on sounds that we've done research showing that they can be helpful to uh, improve memory and other aspects of cognitive function, especially after chemotherapy. So what they call when they feel this chemo brain and being able to help with that. And then the third week I would uh, teach, for example, on the Tibetan, we call it breath and movement, which have some of the Tibetan yogic movements that are seated and very calm, but there's some movement involved and able to, um, in the research we found that there were beneficial uh, to improve sleep disturbances. And then we do a practice, which is a meditation in daily life. And that basically is how do you integrate? So sometimes I say, you know, if you practice 11 minutes every day, what happens the other 23 hours and 49 minutes? So how do you bring what you cultivate in this 11 minutes into the rest of the day? And so we give four examples. So we do, we do meditation and tea, meditation and art, meditation and writing, meditation and nature. And we rotate again each one, like today's meditation and art. I teach them a simple meditation. And then from there, how can we open up, open the eyes slowly, open our hands, and maybe in this case, start drawing. Sometimes I give them a mandala as a way to draw or paint, um, or they can have a white page and just do whatever they want. Um, and how do they relate to that? How do they relate to a cup of tea and feel all the different aspects of its warmth and taste and so forth? And so in all these activities, we can notice when we get disconnected by doing them, but also how they can be supportive and reconnecting. That's so beautiful. It's such a great idea to connect your meditation practice with 
these you know sort of daily activities because that's really what it's all about it's like how do we take a mindfulness awareness or a mindful awareness off the cushion and out into the world and how can we really you know manifest change I know you've spent um quite a bit of time looking at research on the effectiveness of these practices mm-hmm. with cancer patients, maybe with also the caregivers. What, what are some of the results that you're finding from the research that you've done? Some of them, as I, as I was mentioning, for example, with the Tibetan sounds, were specifically looking at, uh, will they able to improve the cognitive capacity after the chemotherapy. Because what happens is, these were women with breast cancer that after chemotherapy, they reported that they had lost their memory or part of their memory and uh, some of the cognitive function. And so, so we designed a study that was specifically for these kind of women. Um, so we did a randomized control trial. And those who were in the Tibetan sound meditation, they they were able to uh, have better short-term memory, which is one that you lose a lot, and then uh, improve uh, speed cognitive function. That's awesome. Are you looking at all the aspects that you were talking about, like breath, sounds, and breath and movement? We have done studies just with uh, what we call Tibetan yoga as a broader category, Uh um, which includes aspects of uh, breath and, and movements. And then we've done the ones with sound, which includes both breath and focusing the mind with that, and then utilizing sounds both as a way of focusing and as a way of, I guess, healing in a way. These sounds, actually, they call them the warrior syllables in Tibetan because they have the kind of the capacity to uh, remove obstacles, whether they're physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual. And so um, these are the ones that we teach. You've been studying all of this for many, many years now, and you've been on this journey. Who are you as a person now versus who you were before? I mean, there's so many things in growing up that there's so many variables. Well, one of the things that continues to be is always open to learn more. Also, having trust in exploring a practice and seeing what works and what doesn't work and being able to share what I'm allowed to share because I, I respect the tradition very much. So as I mentioned, even before doing uh, my first class or even my first research, I would ask my teachers, is it okay to bring it into this context? And so as I'm doing these these practices, I have a great opportunity and a, and, and a great privilege, not only of uh, helping others, but of every time helping myself as well. Wow! Yeah, because I'm practicing, and so I I feel that it's a great job, you know, to be doing. And many times I say, you know, uh, I hope my bosses don't hear that, but a lot of it I would be doing for free. You know, it's such an an, an honor to be in the situation where I feel that even though many of these people are going through dire times you know, I'm able to be there and contribute in a better way and learn from them. I mean, what I learned from them is just amazing. So in terms of a person, I do feel I'm uh, very different uh, in in terms of what I've learned. You know, any any journey uh, as you grow in life, you know, take you to be different. And as from a Buddhist perspective, we're different moment by moment. Uh, but I do feel that I grow and hopefully keep on growing and I'm open to 
both the continuous change, but also the deepening in being able to be more in my heart mind, in my what we call our natural state of mind. And, you know, have the compassion as much as I can to share with others. Yeah. Well, the work that you're doing in the world is just is so great. You're helping so many people and it's just it's a gift. It's so amazing that you can continue to grow along the journey with the others. So congratulations on the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on our show today. I really appreciate having you. And I just, I really love this work. I'm so inspired to dive a little bit deeper into it. So I hope maybe you'll come back on the show and tell us more about the Tibetan sound healing. Thank you. Anytime. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks so much to Alejandro for joining us on Untangle today. You can find out more about his work at A-L-E-C-H-A-O-U-L.com. Alechao. Com. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio in the App Store or on Google Play. We'll see you next week.